Hello and welcome to the Dry Bones Ministries podcast. This is the third and final talk of a Lenten mission entitled Beggars at the Foot of the Cross. My name is Father Adam Potter and grateful that hopefully you didn't just stumble upon this third one randomly, but have gone through the, the first two, understanding the concept of being poor, of being dependent upon God, how that leads us to Calvary to receive his mercy and how this last talk talks about, okay, now we've had our hearts, our souls carved out by his mercy and we're ready to receive his Eucharistic love. I pray this might bear great fruit in your own life and I will pray, pray for you as you go through this talk and uh, this reflection. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. been very grateful for my time with all of you in these nights. Just, yeah, it's been a real gift for me to be able to, to share. Um, yeah, just my own heart, just what the Lord's put on, on my heart. And I, I just, I'm thankful for all of you and your generosity. You know, so often we say that the Lord is never outdone in generosity. And it's not too often that we really give him a chance to really show up and to outdo us in generosity. And so just wanted to like affirm that the Lord uses your generosity in whatever sacrifices, whatever it took you to clear your schedule, to be here, to bring your kids here, or to bring your spouse here, or whoever it was, right? Like, the Lord blesses that. And there's something about mission that is just in our tradition of a church that this is something that we do, and this should, and this should be a part of our life, of our life, lives as Catholics. And gosh, the Lord loves it. He delights in you. He delights that you're here. And I can't wait to see what he does in your life. Tonight, we'll conclude with our, our talk on beggars at the cross, with a particular emphasis on the Eucharist and how whenever we recognize our poverty, whenever we recognize our need for the Lord, we're brought all the way up Calvary. We're brought right there at the foot of the cross with Mary, with John the Baptist. And it's there that we're able to receive the gift of love that is Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. For me, this is everything, because I didn't grow up Catholic. I grew up Protestant, and I'm so grateful for my Protestant upbringing. All the ways that my parents, whenever they were bringing me up, just brought me to a real emphasis, a real appreciation of Jesus Christ, him being alive and real and personal and wanting a relationship with me. I'll never forget coming to the age of reason and just praying and begging God that he would come into my heart, right? We just didn't have a theology of baptism that he would already dwell in my soul. So I remember praying like, God, come into my heart, come into my heart, just like it's six, seven years old, right? And gosh, the emphasis on the scriptures. Just remember my mom and dad sitting down and reading me the different stories, being blown away by someone like David's courage or being blown away by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fire. Like, could I do that? I remember eight years old. Like, would I be willing to do that if I was tested in my faith to say, I will not bow down before ever any other god, any other idol. I would rather die than renounce my faith. And so I'll never forget whenever... Just coming to Pittsburgh, we were still Protestant, and the experience was church hopping. 
going from church to church to church because I didn't know this was just how like, I was growing up. But the idea was we were going to find what was the right church with the right pastor, with the better homilies, with the better music, with the better youth ministry. And just going around from time to time, that was just my experience. But this all changed whenever my mom, who was actually raised Catholic and then fell away from her faith whenever she met and married my dad, had the Holy Spirit move to bring her back. And the Holy Spirit just ripped through her heart and like a good mother, she worked to bring her entire family back. So I'll never forget the first time that my mom wanted to introduce to me this idea of the Catholic Church. I was about 12 years old and my mom wanted to have just some one-on-one -on -one time with me. And so she asked me one afternoon after school, she said, Adam, I'd love a chance to be able to spend some time with you and to talk. I've got to run some errands shopping. Would you like to come with me? And I said, no. I do not want to go shopping. Are you serious? She's like, well, I'll take you to Burger King. We'll get you some food. I was like, fine. <laughs> she knew that the way to my heart was through my stomach. And so we went off to this um, incredible Burger King that will forever be seared in my memory because we drove through. And I just remember getting a double Whopper, plain with cheese, large everything, large fry, large drink. And we pulled off into one of the parking spaces there. And I didn't really think anything of it at the time, but I noticed that the doors locked as so we pulled into that parking spot and it was there as I was polishing off my burger and fries that my mom decided to open up and tell me everything about the Catholic Church and she just unloaded right and here I am just yeah enjoying the burger enjoying the fries but at the same time gosh my heart was moved my heart was, and it was, and it was moved at a time when I should have cared less, right? I was 12 years old, coming on 13, and I was much more interested in video games, in basketball, in girls. And so here this idea of like the Catholic Church should have been further from my interest, and yet I was captivated. I was captivated like just some of these ideas, right? That Jesus Christ founded one church. It's like, wait, only one? What about all these different churches that we would go? And she pointed me back to John chapter 17, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer, the last thing that he prayed to the Father before he was handed over and persecuted and then crucified was, Father, may they be one as we are one. That Jesus wanted there to be one church, one light in this world of darkness to bring all of his faithful to him. I don't know, my 12-year-old self was like, it's a good idea, Jesus. <laughs> These thousands of denominations seem to be a counterexample to your unifying love. And then I remember her talking to me about the Eucharist. I don't know if you've ever heard that faith is a gift, but I've never experienced it more in that moment, right? In a time that I should have cared less, she was telling me about what happens at the Mass, that at every Mass, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the priest, that the bread and wine no longer are the bread and wine, but they are actually his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. And I just remember being blown away that the Lord would do that. And I don't know that I had the words for it at that moment, right? But for my Protestant upbringing, I just remember from the depths of my heart thinking, that's it. Like, what could be more personal than that? You know, Protestants are always talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. Like, what could be more personal than his Eucharistic presence? That when he said in Matthew 28, I will be with you always until the end of time, he meant it. That wasn't just some idea. That wasn't just some theory or some, like, longing of his heart. He meant it to be with us physically, personally, relationally. People ask me when the first time was that I thought about being a priest. It was in that Burger King parking lot. <laughs> 
where like I wasn't even baptized yet. I wasn't even baptized yet. And I just had in the depths of my heart thinking, Lord, if you would ever call me to be a priest, that'd be sweet. <laughs> I didn't have the word, like, it'd be cool, <laughs> it'd be cool. That celibacy thing, like, all right, we'll work on that. Like, I don't know how that all will work out. But like, gosh, to be called to be a priest would be one of the most incredible gifts. The greatest thing that I ever get to do as a priest is to say the Mass. There's nothing that I love to do more. There's nothing that I look forward to doing more than getting to the altar and offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And to think about, gosh, that me, a knucklehead, like in the, my very hands get to hold the God of the universe and to think that, like, I did that. And it was all the Lord, right? And yet he depends on priests. That you could have a thousand angels of heaven all say those same words of consecration. This is my body. This is my blood. But it's only the priest who's validly consecrated who says those words. And God obeys. Like God obeys his priests. But here in the altar and in the sacrament of confession, your sins are forgiven and God obeys. It's like that is ridiculously awesome. It's the greatest thing that I get to do and I look forward to it. And Contrary to what this one high school girl said to me about the Mass as being one of those boring things that you have to do so you can get to the fun things, it's like, no, it's not like the boring thing and then I get to go to the fun things of priest. For me, it all starts and ends at the altar. Friends, some of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had have come through the Mass and through the Eucharist. I told you about that Mass last night that changed my life, but I just remember being moved while saying mass to tears like I don't know I'm like I'm grateful that the Lord kind of protects my heart because if he didn't I think I would be bawling at every mass <laughs> just to really appreciate right like as a priest and like in my nothingness here I'm saying these words that's allowing the very love of God to be made present for you for you, and I just like in some of those moments of being a priest, getting to know the parish, getting to know the faithful, and to think about my puny love for all of them, that I would say, This is my body. Like, Lord, how much do you love them? Like, that you would hold nothing back and give your entire self to them right here, right now. And Lord, I know them, and you still love them. And then there are just like these other moments, right, where, gosh, like if we had eyes to see what actually happens at the Mass, I think we'd be blown away. But some people will see, and it's incredible, they'll come up to me after Mass and they'll just say, Father, Father, I promise you I'm not crazy. But when you elevated the host at the consecration, it was on fire. But I promise I'm not crazy. I'm not a crazy person. It's like, I know. <laughs> I know you're not crazy. Like, if we had eyes to see, I think we'd all see a host aflame with God's love, very love for each and every one of us. Someone else came up to me after Mass, and again, it's like, I'm not crazy. It's like, gosh, I know, I believe too. Like, I'm not crazy. But when you elevated the host, there was this radiant light that was bursting forth. And it, gosh, I wanted to yell out to everyone in the church, look, look, it's really him. But Father, I'm not crazy. <laughs> like, no, I know. I believe too. Remember the line of St. John Vianney? Said that if we could actually see what happens at every single Mass, we would all die. But not out of fear, he said, not out of fear. We would die out of love. To actually be able to see the love that's made present on the altar, we would be incredibly overwhelmed and gosh, have our hearts just like, oh, I can't take it. 
Do you know that this is what Thomas Aquinas says, the twofold Eucharistic miracle that happens at every Mass? The first miracle that happens is that it actually transforms into his body, blood, soul, and divinity every single time. The second miracle is that it still looks like bread and wine. Do you get that? <laughs> like the second miracle is that God allows his true presence, his love to actually be veiled so that we do not like shed our eyes or our hearts in fear of like, gosh, it's too much for me to take and to hold and to contain. It's like, yes, the Lord knows. He knows. In my young priesthood, I commit that some of the most powerful moments have come right at the altar, but some of the other moments have come from just bringing the Eucharist to the different faithful, especially in nursing homes. I love going to the nursing homes and bringing the Lord and the Eucharist to them. And it's, sometimes it's just a party. It's like, Father, you're here! It's like, yes, you're welcome. I'm like, you're here! And it's like, I've been waiting for you. And it's like, how long? It's like, since last month. It's last, I've just been waiting for you to come. It's like, it's all you, Lord. It's all you. And I just remember like getting done with this one nursing home and going around. And the one woman that I saw on my way out, she said, Father, thanks so much for coming. And I don't think I meant to be kind of dismissive, but I just said, yeah, no problem. She said, no, Father, really. You brought us God. Like, oh, right, <laughs> right. Like, oh, like, that, Lord, forgive me for any time that I'll forget what I'm actually doing because, gosh, anybody in the world can bring us closer to God, can bring us closer to Jesus, but only the priest can actually bring Jesus through the sacramental grace to the faithful. Gosh, is it because the priest is special? Yeah, we are. But not like that, right? Like it's like it's so much beyond. It's so much beyond the priest. There's this incredible cathedral that we have in Pittsburgh, where up on the high altar. Oh, I get chills thinking about it. Up on the high altar, if you go up and you stand right in the middle of the high altar, it's this beautiful cathedral that we have. There are actually these two engravings in the marble floor. That as you step right in the middle, you step in these two footprints of every single priest every single bishop that for decades has gone up to that altar and offered the very sacrifice of the Mass. And I get chills thinking about that, right? Because it's like, this priest special? It's like, no. But it's the fact that I stand in the very priesthood of Jesus Christ who conforms every single man into his very presence. And so to think about stepping into those footprints, not just of the priests who have come before me, but to step in the very footprints of Jesus Christ. Is the priest special? It's like, yes, he's special, but not because of him, but because of Jesus Christ, the one and eternal high priest that actually allows through his knucklehead priests to reveal his love. It's just incredible. Do you pray for your priests? I remember going through seminary and like begging people, pray for me, pray for me so that I can get to ordination, so that I can get to ordination. And then all of a sudden I got to ordination, was ordained a priest, and I was like, oh shoot. <laughs> I need more prayers now than I ever did before, right? So if you don't pray for your priest every single day, please start that. I know so many of you already do, but please pray for your priest. And it's just, not just because we're awesome. <laughs> It's because we're so weak. It's because we're so weak and the evil one loves to attack us. St. Afonsus Liguori said that a priest is attacked 100 times more than the lay person. 
Which, I don't know how you feel about that, how that sounds to you, and maybe you're like, I don't know, Father, I get attacked a lot. But maybe just to think about this logically, right, that from the perspective of the evil one, would it not make sense that if you can take down one priest, how many souls can you bring down with him? We're all under attack these days, but the hearts of priests are under attack in so many ways. I love being a priest. I love the relationship that I have with the Eucharist. I love being able to bring the Eucharist to others. And sometimes it's not just the gift of being able to offer people the Eucharist, but sometimes it's actually being able to defend the reality of the Eucharist. Back to the nursing home. I remember this one beautiful woman, Mary, who I got to bring the Eucharist to and just had several powerful moments with her. The problem was Mary, struggles with memory, struggles with her memory. So I remember the first time that I came to her and she's like, Father, it's you. It's like, have we met before? It's like, doesn't matter. It's you. You're a priest and you're here to bring me Jesus. And I'm like, right, that's why I'm here. And I brought her Jesus. And I remember the next time that I went to her and I'm like, Mary, I'm back. She's like, who are you? <laughs> Dang it. She's like, who are you and what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm Father Adam and I'm here to bring you Holy Communion. Like, why would you do that? Because it's the Eucharist. It's, it's Jesus. He, he wants to come and he wants to be with you. It's like, what's he ever done for me before? Like, oh, shoot. Um, and all of a sudden I'm like, well, G well, Mary, it's Jesus, right? And so, gosh, he, you've been Catholic your whole life. How many uh, times have you received Holy Communion? How many times have you brought your heart to him, your sorrows, your joys, your everything, and allowed him to just be with you? And she's like, well, here I am suffering now. So, I don't know. And so all of a sudden, I started going back and forth with her, trying to convince her that the Eucharist was something that she wanted to receive. I was like, what just happened? And then all of a sudden, I went back the third month and the fourth month, and every single time, I found that I had to actually convince Mary that I was a priest who wanted to bring her Jesus, and that was a good thing for her. Now, here's the thing, right? Here's how weak I am. There came to this one point in my mind, in my heart, this temptation. Like, every month, it was this battle with Mary. It's like, is this worth it? It's like, it's like it would almost be easier to spare like the 20-minute detour and just to, and I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. There's actually nothing more worth doing than spending my time with Mary, reconvincing her that Jesus is real, that Jesus loves her, that Jesus desires to be with her. What difference does the Eucharist make, right? Here she is suffering, and I'm like, what difference does he make? It's not about changing where you're at. It's not about taking away your pains or your suffering. Jesus loves you that he wants to be with you, and he wants to, be, wants to remind you that he is so close to you. He is actually suffering with you, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you, no matter what happens. And then all of a sudden, I came to Mary just days before she died. I could hear before I even entered her room, there she was groaning in pain. I could hear her tears, and then I could hear her praying. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And then she would go on, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. And she repeated that last part, now and at the hour of our death. Right, the two most important times that we would ask Mary to pray for us, right now and at the hour of our death. And here she was, right? I came in, she's like, Father Adam, it's you. I'm like, you remember. She's like, Father Adam, it's you. I said, I brought you the Eucharist. And she just said, praise God. 
Or like, I don't know what that grace was for her in those last moments of her life, but in her entire life of her ups and downs with the Lord, of even like battling with the priest, the Lord had prepared her now and at the hour of our death. Communion. Holy Communion, the Eucharist, what is it? More than anything else, it is a relationship with the living God of the universe. And it's this relationship that on the one hand, changes nothing. On the other hand, it changes everything. Do you know what I mean, right? It's a relationship, right? That lest we would think that receiving Holy Communion or being Catholic would then all of a sudden take away our anxieties, take away our fears, take away our pains, our aches, our anxieties, or our whatever. It's this relationship where God actually enters into our life in a way that life is still life. Suffering is still suffering, but we have this love itself with us to guide us, to redeem it all, and to transform our hearts so that we can experience the glory of this life with Him. Have you ever heard the difference between this relationship with God as being not a contract but a covenant? Or like this is everything to appreciate, biblically speaking, that the relationship that God wants to have with His people is not just a contract, a contract which is an exchange of goods or services for an extended agreement, a period of time, where you would say, okay, I'll hire you to be able to do this for me and I'll give you this money and then as soon as the job is done, we can tear up the agreement, we're done. It's a covenant that instead of an exchange of goods and services, it's an exchange of persons. So instead of a contract that says, okay, this is yours and now this is mine, a covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. Right, and here's the thing, if we get this wrong, then all of a sudden we're gonna start looking at our relationship with God wrong. Because so many of us actually look at our relationship with God as if it's a contract and not a covenant. Here's what this might look like, right? It's a contract, right? Lord, I've been Catholic my whole life. I've never missed a single Sunday Mass or a Holy Day of Obligation. I've been praying the Rosary. I've done this Novena. And how come I'm still in this relationship with, that's in shambles? Or how come my kids don't listen to me? Or how come my job is still up for grabs? Or how come I'm still suffering? Or how come I still have this lack of faith? Why are, where are you? And maybe we're treating our relationship with God as if it's a contract. The relationship that God wants to have with us is not contractual. Do this, honor me, worship me, say these prayers, these novenas or these rosaries, and then I'll give you whatever you ask for. No, it's a covenant where God gives his very heart to us and asks that we would give our very heart to him. I think about Mary. How beautiful it is to realize, Mary, the, the woman in the nursing home, right? That how her whole life of a lived relationship prepared for that final reception of Holy Communion. It's called viaticum, food for the journey. That in our last moments, we would receive the Eucharist, that very substance from God to give us strength to pass from this life to the life to come in the Father's house. So I just think to really appreciate this, we have to go back to the spirit of poverty. Poverty and just recognizing this incredible gift of the relationship with God. What does this look like? Again, as we've been talking about these last couple of nights, it looks like appreciating and accepting our nothingness. Our nothingness. 
Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 15 gives this beautiful discourse at the Last Supper about the vine and the branches? I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me so that I can abide in you. And then when we get to verse 5, Jesus says this incredible line, without me, you can do nothing. Which oftentimes we hear that and we kind of translate that in our modern Western world as Jesus saying, without me, you can do something. (laughs) Without me, you can do a little or a lot more than you could on your own, right? But I don't know that we take those words of Jesus Christ seriously when when he says, without me, you can do nothing, right? Like, what does that mean? What does that really look like? Nothing? Not even just a little bit? And I think which follows from that is just this reality that God doesn't owe us anything. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And yet here we are, right? And here in our, our world, we're bombarded with a lot of different attacks. And there's this one heresy that's floating around right now. And it is this heresy of modernism. Modernism that might, might be reduced to saying it like this. It puts the emphasis on the material, the practical, and the belief in only what is measurable, what can be seen, what can be tested, what can be proved according to the scientific process, that kind of a thing. And all of a sudden, it put, puts us in a place where even though we're in church, we may not really believe as we are really required. I don't know, it might, like modernism might see itself play out in this way, right? I don't know, it might look like a priest who says that he has no time to pray. Like, how sad would that be? A priest that has no time to pray, he says, because I'm so busy, I have so many administrative things to do, or I have so many meetings, or I have so many different things where I'm running around trying to help all these different people, and then when I get to the end of the day, I'm just exhausted and just need to collapse and fall asleep and so that I can do it all over again. And all of a sudden, it's like, Father? (laughs) Do you not actually believe in the supernatural power of prayer? Or have you only come to believe that what's most powerful and effective is only what you can see and what you can measure and how many seats are in the pews or how much money is in the bank account. It's like, Father, (laughs) do you actually believe that the supernatural is more real than the natural? Right, but what about all of us? Maybe it looks like the faithful who only go to pray whenever they're in need. It's like my life is falling, falling apart, now I need to go and pray. Or maybe it's the mentality that Mass is only as good as the homily applies to me or that the music touches me, or that I'm inspired, or uplifted, or entertained, or whatever we're saying nowadays. What does it look like? Looks like seeing not the invisible, the spiritual, but only seeing what's physical. I propose that we're in a time of supplemental Catholicism. I made that up, and I don't know if it's uh, been said before, supplemental Catholicism, right? It might take, it, take roots like that, like to appreciate it, right? It's this idea that we are all okay on our own. I'm okay, you're good, we're good, we're all good. But like, we also know that we could be a little bit better. And so what's church for? Church is for coming and being able to take us to the next level. Like I could use a little bit more peace, a little bit more joy, or a little bit more sense of the spiritual. But what we really mean is like, no, no, but like on my own, I'm pretty okay. And all of a sudden, I think we're just really missing who God is. I kind of think about those Red Bull commercials 
Or you just see people like running around throughout their day and it's like, gosh, I'm just not going to be able to make it. I'm not going to be able to make it. And it's like, but if I just had a Red Bull, then I'd be able to go like to the next couple hours. Or now the commercials are all about like a battery meter above our heads. Have you seen those yet? It's like we've reduced ourselves to our phones. They're like, we've charged ourselves overnight, but then as we go throughout the day, our battery meter just goes lower and lower and lower. And then all of a sudden we're just like looking, I need an outlet. I need to be plugged in. I need to be recharged. And I just feel like sometimes we look at church that way. We kind of start talking about this, like, I just need my Eucharist to get me through the week or like a really good homily to inspire me for the next week so that I can make it. And it's like we start looking at church as if it's this place to actually just be topped off. The reality is God is not a Red Bull. <laughs> Sorry, Lord. Like, he, he's not just a battery charge. He's not just a pick-me-up. But he's actually the reality without which I wouldn't even be. We need to recover this biblical worldview that sees the reality of actually who I am and how I am. Have you ever heard the church teaching that God creates ex nihilo? means that God creates out of nothing. Have you ever wondered what the heck that means? Realize I've heard that, been taught that, I learned that in seminary, and still just didn't, like, great, that means that there was nothing, and then there was something. Great, awesome. Here's a way to appreciate it, right? About God creating out of nothing. What does that actually mean? Consider a carpenter. Let's think about Joseph. Here's Joseph, a carpenter, creating this beautiful wooden table right? Putting it together with his own work, with his own sweat, with his own love, with his own charity, right? And here you have a table, right? What would, you ha what would happen if you took Joseph away from that table? What would you have left? What would be the material that, that is there? I'm looking for wood. Wood. <laughs> you, take the, you take the creator away from this wooden table, and what do you have? You have wood, right? So now consider God creating the world, creating you and me. Take God away from me, and what do you have left? Right? Maybe you're tempted to think like, oh, you would have flesh and bones and nerves, and you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. If you take God away from me, away from you, the material, the stuff that you have left is nothing. Because God creates out of nothing. Right? Do you see what this means? Like this isn't just some doctrinal point that the Catholic Church has believed in. The fact that God creates out of nothing all of a sudden gives us this insight into reality. That I'm here but without God, I wouldn't be here. I'm here, but I don't have to be here. And then all of a sudden, you start to like have your eyes open up and realize, oh, wait, and you wouldn't be here either. And this moment wouldn't even be here either. This thought, this word, this microphone wouldn't be here. Everything is a gift. Can you imagine how different life would be if we started to see this world as a gift? God holding us in existence that every single moment, every single thought, every single word, every single action is a gift that if God were not here, neither would we be here. I don't know about you, I want to see the world like that. This is brought home in this weird way. One of the things I love to do is prepare couples for marriage. I love just being able to put them on the hot seat and drill them with all sorts of interpersonal questions. In charity, in charity. 
Why do you want to marry? Why this other person? And what does God have to do here? I remember this one couple. Here they are just trying to reveal their own love to me. Hopefully not trying to prove their love to me. But I just remember this one date that they shared with me. And this one date that they went on was to a cafe latte art making class. So they met, made coffee, cafe lattes. And they were telling me every single detail about this detail about this cafe latte art making class. And here I am, someone who's um, heavily dependent upon coffee. And my question is very utilitarian. Can you drink it? And they're like, of course you can drink it. But Father, we could actually grind the beans and we could actually then all of a sudden put together these drinks and then we were frothing the milk and getting the microfoam to this perfect way such that we were making art designs in the top of the foam, tulips and hearts. Father, we could make you a heart-shaped latte. Can I drink it? <laughs> Like, Father, you don't understand. And there was just something that, like, I was talking on this plane, and they were talking on this plane, and we were just, like, kept on missing each other. But I got this sense, like, finally, you know, through my hard head, that that cafe latte meant something very different to them than it did to me. And it had something to do with the fact that every time they were talking about it, they just looked at each other with this twinkle in their eye, with this, like, little smirk on their face. They meant something like this. Father, our relationship has changed that drink in a way that is not just my cafe latte or her cafe latte. It's our cafe latte. Can you drink it? <laughs> Here's the thing, right? Like, what difference does a relationship make? On the one hand, it changes nothing. On the other hand, it changes everything. And love does this, right? Love all of a sudden allows us to see the world differently. That like my life is still the same, but all of a sudden once I've fallen in love, I don't see the world in the same way anymore. I don't see my job the same way anymore. I don't see my drive the same way anymore. Gosh, all of a sudden even the landscapes and the hills look differently. Do you know that the scripture speaks to this? Seeing the other in everything. One of my favorite books of the Bible is one of the most romantic, one of the most sensual pieces of poetry ever written in the history of humanity. And its content is so unique and so particular that to hear it read in church, you would have to go to a wedding or to a parish mission given by me. It's the Song of Songs, right? It's one of the most beautiful love poems ever written. And I just want you to appreciate, right? Here's how the beloved, this man, speaks about his beloved, his wife. And it might sound kind of odd, but I think we can listen to it with an open heart and just appreciate. Love changes the way we see things. So here's Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 and following. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Now, pause right there, right? Doves, like, uh, I spent a number of time uh, with Father Conway in Rome. Doves are one of the most frightening creatures out there. <laughs> we would walk through the streets of Rome, and we would hear their... And we would just be in absolute terror. Doves are dirty. They are a... 
They're a complete liability to ruin your entire day from above, right? But here's the thing, like, this man sees this woman's eyes and he's reminded of doves behind the veil. But your hair, your hair, it's like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. I don't know that I have too many more pleasant things to say about goats than I do about doves, right? But like, is this flattering? Like a, a horde of goats going down? But this is how he sees his beloved's hair. Your teeth, though, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. So female lambs that have just been shaved, right? Your teeth, your teeth. Your lips, though, are like a sacred scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks or like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Just to top it off, your neck is like the Tower of David built for an arsenal, whereon having a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Ladies, I don't know out you who are out here if that would be flattering at all, especially your neck, right? A tower of marble, right? That's so strong that we could have a military on top of it. It's like, thanks a lot, you know. Here's the point of it, right? Love changes everything. When I am in love, when I have allowed another person to come crashing into my life, I see the world differently. All of a sudden, I see the world through these love-colored glasses where all of a sudden, the cornfields are not just cornfields. I didn't think this went all the way through. I don't <laughs> but all of a sudden, whatever that music is or whatever the meal is or wherever this place is on our drive, all of a sudden, these things can stir up, oh my gosh, I'm loved. I experienced this other person. I don't know, have any of you ever seen the sunset before? A couple of you, all right. The sunset, right? It's one of the most incredibly beautiful things. And just to appreciate, right, maybe you've been like on top of a mountain and you've been able to see and wait for the sun to set. And it's incredible, if it's, especially on a clear night where there are no clouds blocking the sun as it's working all the way through the different layers of the atmosphere. It starts to change colors. And then all of a sudden you see the different hillsides and the slopes and you see the trees and you see the sun just curving over the entire slope coming right up to your eyes and it's just... Wow, what does that actually look like? Here's what we don't see. There's the trees, there's the mountain, there's the river, and there's the rolling hills, and like, oh yeah, and there's the sun over there. It's like, that would be to see the sunset wrong. To see the sunset right is not just to see the, like all these different pieces and then like the sun is just being one more piece to the puzzle, right? It's actually to see the whole landscape as sunbathed dripping with sun in all of its radiant colors. Friends, I don't know about you, that's how I want to see the world, not just as sun-bathed, but as God-bathed. That every single landscape, every single cornfield, every single church, every single person, every single conversation, every single thought is being soaked with the very presence of God, that he is here and he is with us and calling us to actually give ourselves over to this redemptive holy moment. But it's hard because most of us don't see the world that way. As if we're nothing and here's God holding us and giving us life by his very act of love. Sometimes we still speak like modernists in this place of supplemental Catholicism. Thinking about this friend who's pursuing healing and faith. He's been really struggling with the faith. He, he believes, but he doesn't believe. He wants to believe, but he just struggles. Like, I know I've been taught all these truths, all these realities, and yet here I am still just like, I don't get it. And I'm just bombarded with cynicism from the world and all this skepticism. 
And then he also struggles with his own set of vices and these habits, these different sins that he just can't shake and he can't break. And why do we keep falling back into it, back into it? And all of a sudden, I remember coming, him coming to me and we're going back and forth, we're going back and forth. And I'm like, you got to pray every day. You got to go to confession every month. Maybe you need to go every week. You need to be praying the rosary every day. You need time and silence just to be able to rest with the Lord. And finally, he said, and Father Adam, what if I actually did that? What if I actually did every single thing that you just said for a whole year? And what if at the end of that year, all of a sudden, I still didn't believe? And what if I went through your program exactly as you just said, and at the very end, I still struggled with this sin? I still struggled with this bad habit. What then? And here's the thing. It sounded like he was angry, but I think it just came from this place of woundedness. Like maybe more like this. Please don't tell me that I would get my hopes up in God one more time, only to be let down. Please don't tell me that I would make this investment in Him, in this time of prayer, in this time of trust, in this time of surrender, only to it not go the way that I want it to go. And here's this like response, right? Like, how do you how do you really communicate this? You're still seeing your relationship with God wrong, right? You're still seeing this relationship with God on your terms. That as if a relationship with God is just a program, that if I just say these prayers or if I just go through this like sacramental okay mass and then confession and then this novena, then all of a sudden God will give me what I want. Is that a contract or a covenant? That would be acting contractually and it wouldn't actually be seeing God in a covenant, in this relationship that God who has no need of us but actually loves us in existence, calls us to be given over to Him, to trust Him on His terms and His timing, right? Isn't it interesting that we would be making, on the, making limits on the time that God has to be able to respond? No, I'll, I'll do this, but just for a year and then you better answer, or, or the way that, he that we would be changed. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. And that might sound really mean or harsh, but God is perfect and whole, complete in himself. He didn't create us because he was bored in heaven. He didn't create us because he wanted to manipulate us. He didn't create us because he wanted just like to be entertained. Though sometimes I would imagine I'm very entertaining to the Lord. It's like, that's not why I'm here. It's not why you're here. He created us out of nothing so that we could experience this love with him. And yet it's all free. It's all gift. And we just miss this, right? Thinking that God does owe us something. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard for us to appreciate that one parable that Jesus gives about the servants who are working in the field all day only to get, gone, get done, come into the master's house, and to respond to the master, how else can I serve you at table? Like to us, we're like, no, 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 no. Like I worked all day to be able to have a spot at the table. I worked all day to be able to put my feet up. I worked all day to be actually be served and to have some sort of food or nourishment. Not so with God. That God owes us nothing. That we would actually see our nothingness as a way to actually give him full access to let go of any terms or conditions or restrictions to what he's calling us to. Friends, to be nothing, to have not have God owe us anything, 
might sound harsh. I remember praying with us on a retreat about two years ago. And I just remember going outside and looking up at the night sky. And I remember looking up at the stars. And I don't know if you've ever seen the stars before. It's like, I really saw the stars. Like, no pollution. And the sky was filled. And I just remember seeing, like, all the stars, thinking about all the planets, thinking about all the different galaxies, and just feeling, like, incredibly small, incredibly little. And then all of a sudden, feeling like maybe this place of, like, insignificance, I just felt this expansion in my heart just, like, blow out. And I was like, but God, you know me. You've counted every single hair of my head, every single fiber of my heart you knit into being in my mother's womb. Like you know me and you've actually given me the ability to appreciate all of the universe, to be actually to be able to, to appreciate my nothingness. No one else is able to do this except for us, man and woman made in your image and likeness. Who am I, God? And I've never just felt more free, more free to be nothing, more free to just be a complete servant, a complete, gosh, child before the Heavenly Father to actually give him everything. This is where surrender is everything. I remember this woman who called me about a year ago and she came um, just in tears over the phone and she was describing everything that was going wrong in her life. And it did have to do, first of all, with her first marriage that fell apart. And then all of a sudden, she's a single mother trying to raise this child to the best of her ability. But she's struggling with her work and with being present to her daughter. And all of a sudden, her work is falling apart. And then all of a sudden, she has this opportunity for this other relationship that she knows isn't good, but it might give her this security. And, but like, what do I do? And, and Father, where's God right now? How come I've been trying my hardest to be faithful, to trust in Him, and my life is still a wreck? And my daughter, Father, my daughter, what about her? And I just told her the Lord loves you. And He's with you. And He's inviting you to come so close to Him at the cross. What about praying and really praying? and really sacrificing for your daughter and for your relationship with God and with others so that you can actually come to experience the fullness of his plan for you. What if you were to do that every single day to pray? Have you ever prayed the rosary? She's like, yeah. <laughs> like, if you were like really pray the rosary and she's like, yeah. Like you need to pray the rosary. What about every single day? What if you start going to confession regularly and see what happens, how God will start working in your life? Like, yeah. And she's hung up, and she was probably really disappointed with my answer. I didn't really hear from her again. Until a couple months ago, she called me again. And she said, Father, I can't wait to talk to you. Like, oh, good. Like, I can't wait to talk to you. I listened to what you said, and I didn't like it at the time, but I listened to what you said, and I've been praying every single day. I've been going to Mass every single Sunday. I've been even praying the Rosary. Gosh, the Rosary every single day, going to confession. And Father, I can't wait to talk to you because my life is even worse. It's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, my life is even worse than it was last year. And I just want to know, what the heck? <laughs> like I did every single thing that you asked me to do. I started praying. I started going to Mass. I trusted in the sacraments. And then all of a sudden, I have my daughter looking at me and she said, but mom, didn't you say it was going to be a year? And then I have to look at my daughter and explain like, what is prayer? Why am I praying? Why do I keep dragging her to Mass? Why do I keep dragging her through those, those boring homilies? Like, 
Sorry. <laughs> I was like, what is this all for? What is this all about? And here is this reality, right? Like my heart was just breaking for her. But it was also just incredibly grieved because she still wasn't looking at her relationship with God in the right way. Our relationship with God is not contractual, it's covenantal. And I told her, the Lord is with you. His love for you is such that he does not fear entering into your suffering, into your pains, and into that relationship with your daughter. Have you told your daughter about how present he is to you right now in this suffering and in this struggle? Have you told her about what, how the Lord can transform our misery into glory? Have you told her about how, what it means to really trust despite the change in our circumstances or in our conditions? Have you told her about how the love of God on the cross reveals to us his love is without conditions, restrictions, or expirations? About how the Lord's love goes so far as to be with you? Is that enough that he's with you? And she more or less said no and hung up. And, it's like, and here's the thing, right? Here's why, gosh, I've just been this proponent trying to propose the surrender novena that I've given to you at daily mass and over the last couple days, or if you're new tonight, just to like repropose again how powerful the surrender novena is. That through this priest, Don Delindo in Italy, Jesus wants to reveal the power of what it means to really surrender to him and to his will. Here's what he says on the third day. And just like, I invite you just like to pray with us, right? And to open up your own heart. How often have we prayed this way too? Jesus says to this priest, How many things I do when the soul in so much spiritual and material need turns to me, looks at me, and says, You take care of it, then closes its eyes and rests. In pain, you pray for me to act, but you pray that I would act in the way that you want. You do not turn to me. Instead, you want me to adapt your ideas. So do not act this way, but pray as I taught you in the Our Father, hallowed be thy name, that is, be glorified in my need. And to pray this way in the Our Father, thy kingdom come. That is, let all that is in us and in the world be in accord with your kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, in our need, decide as you see fit for our temporal and eternal life. If you say to me truly, thy will be done, which is the same as saying, you take care of it, I will intervene with all my omnipotence and I will resolve the most difficult situations. Friends, what does it mean to really pray, Thy will be done? Have you ever wondered what that prayer really means? I remember talking to this one woman who admitted to me that she's been praying the Our Father and skipping that line. <laughs> praying the whole thing going through, but not being able to pray, Thy will be done, because she didn't really mean it. Like, she didn't really want God's will to be done. She still wanted her will to be done. And I guess I appreciated her authenticity, <laughs> and yet, 
gosh, the idea of our prayers, especially the Our Father, is that we might even pray in a way that is difficult for us, that would allow our heart to catch up with our words. Lord, I would want my will to be on you. I want you to answer my prayers according to my needs, my desires. But that I might actually trust you in this way. Friends, this is what it means to be really poor. To be really poor and to experience, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Friends, a relationship with Jesus Christ, especially in the Eucharist, on the one hand, it changes nothing. On the one hand, it changes everything. That we might have the living God of the universe say, I see you. I know you, and I'm not afraid to enter into your life and to walk with you and to suffer with you and to rejoice with you. And here's the reality, friends. He desires you to return the favor, right? That it isn't just about us asking from God, Lord, would you help me? Lord, would you be with me? Lord, would you give me what I need? He actually wants us to come to him and to be with him and to console him and to rest with him. Have you ever thought about this? Like to be able to come to our Eucharistic Lord truly as a beggar at the cross and to see one who cries out for you. Right? That you make a difference in being in church. You make a difference whenever in the silence of your heart you turn to him in prayer. You make a difference whenever you offer up those sacrifices to him. You make a difference whenever you rejoice in your suffering. You make a difference whenever you offer up your family to him. You make a difference whenever you make an act of faith, even whenever by all accounts you can't see him or you can't feel him or you have no idea what he's doing. It makes a difference to him. Whenever we come before our Eucharistic Lord, he rejoices. And maybe you're like, what are you talking about, Father? You just told me this whole talk. I'm nothing. It's like, no. You're with him. You're everything. With him, you have a heart. With him, you have a soul that is unique and un unrepeatable that no one else can offer to him. And it's in your life, both the joys and the sorrows, even the bland monot monotony, that when you offer your heart to him, you allow his heart to expand in love and actually to receive you even more fully into his most sacred heart and to give you everything you need. Friend, the love of, the, of our God is incomprehensible. Whenever we look at the Eucharist, may we see the living God of the universe who loves us into existence, hold us in the very palms of his hands and delights in you and me. Blessed Mother Mary, you stood at the foot of the cross and you never lost hope. You never got discouraged. You never despaired. Even in the midst of the most horrific act of violence, injustice, hatred, you never lost hope, incredible trust in your son. Blessed Mother Mary, increase our faith in your son, especially in his Eucharistic presence, that we might know whenever we come into this church, he is here that whenever we receive him, he dwells in the depths of our hearts, that he does not leave us or abandon us, but he is with us. Blessed Mother Mary, give us your heart, your immaculate heart to say and echo your very words. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory to God. I, I praise the Lord that um, 
you're here, that um, you made it through this Lenten mission, and just grateful for the opportunity to be able to share it with you. And I pray that it might, yeah, really mean something for you, uh, make a difference in your life, and bring you closer to the Lord Jesus. Praise, praise God. That's uh, that's it. That's our goal in all things. So if you uh, would like to support the work of Dry Bones Ministries, please visit our website at drybonespgh.org. Just pray for your continued prayers for me and for all of those at this nonprofit, Dry Bones, that we might continue to do our best to evangelize and to bring many more people to come to know the love of God and to respond with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. God love you. God bless you. Please pray for me and know that I'm praying for you.